This is the Smart Passive Income Podcast with Pat Flynn, session number 284. Let's do it. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host. He used to have a problem reading the last page of every book first, Pat Flynn. Now, as you know, I've been in the podcasting space for quite a long time now, and I've had a lot of success with the multiple shows and, and episodes and even the courses I've created. Part of my success is due to how particular I've been in the tools that I use, and one of my favorite tools is Buzzsprout. For those of you who are not familiar with Buzzsprout, you need to be, because if you have a podcast or you're looking to start one, Buzzsprout is by far the easiest way to start podcasting, and they're making it even easier. This is a podcast host, and it allows you to get listed on all the top directories, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, et cetera. I use it myself. They've provided advanced stats for us now so that you can track your podcast downloads and understand exactly what things are happening with your show, which is really key, right? Just there's not a lot of data that uh, a lot of tools give us access to, and Buzzsprout is some of the best. They'll even help you build a website for your podcast so your audience can easily find you online and listen to all the episodes right from your site too, even if you don't have a website. On the technical side, this is one of the coolest things I've seen in a while. Through the host, Buzzsprout, you can automatically optimize your audio through their newest feature, Magic Mastering. So Magic Mastering is like an Instagram filter, but for your audio, and it takes the audio you have and just automatically masters it to match the Apple Podcast authoring best practices. It's totally awesome. Just, I love them because not only is it just a super easy tool to use, but I know the team there. They are the sponsor of this episode, and I wanted to make sure you got to know who they are because they're they're a great tool, and if you're just starting out with Buzzsprout, you can actually get a special deal. Their plans start at $12 a month. Buzzsprout is a wonderful partner of mine, and you know, you can actually get 33% more time on your plan, whichever plan you choose, just through this link alone. And that's smartpassiveincome.com slash buzzsprout. And that's a huge deal, 33% extra time on your plan just by going through that link. You can claim that again by going to smartpassiveincome.com slash buzzsprout. Check them out, they're awesome. Welcome and thank you so much for joining me today in this session of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. I'm really excited because we're gonna be talking with somebody who I've gotten to know over the last year and he's awesome because he's helping several different people across all different niches with their crowdfunding campaigns. He's a crowdfunding expert. His name is Clay Abair, but it's spelled H-E-B-E-R-T, but it's pronounced Abair, so go bears. Um, anyway, uh, Clay Abair, he's awesome, crowdfundinghacks.com, but you know what? The URL for today's episode to get more information from him is Clay and Pat. Com. Actually, we talk so much about some of the ins and outs of these campaigns that I think it's going to inspire a lot of you to potentially get your idea up on Kickstarter so you can have people support it, gain new exposure, uh, and all those kinds of things. And we are actually going to be talking in more depth later on in a webinar so you can get your questions answered and all those kinds of things. Plus, I'm actually going to be poking his brain even more specific to some of the Kickstarter-related things that I'm going to be doing related to a physical product that I'm coming out with. So if you wanna learn more about that, the URL is clayandpat.com. But anyway, the way that I met Clay was pretty awesome. We played basketball together, and we are both around the same size. I think he may be a little bit taller than I am, but typically we play basketball with a lot of tall people, and he and I are always guarding each other, and he is just a shooter, from the outside, he's always scoring threes and you know it's just always fun to battle Clay and he and I have gotten to know each other very well through that and I'm just really excited to have him on the show. So uh, let's cut the, the, the fluff and let's go right into it, here we go. 
Clay, what's up? Thank you for coming on the SPA podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Pat. It's been I've been I've been wanting to do this forever and super stoked to be here. You know, I've been wanting to do it forever too, especially because I've gotten to know you mostly through the basketball games that we've been uh, playing together here in San Diego for certain events. And you know, Clay's a great guy. He's only pushed me and shoved me a couple times, um, but he always extends his hand to pick me back up, which is cool. So that's why I love him. But anyway, uh, as many of you know, it is uh, crowdfunding month here on SPI, which is really great because I know a lot of you are thinking about running your own Kickstarter and Indiegogo campaigns and GoFundMe campaigns. Um, but me personally, I'm going to be doing one very soon related to this online, uh, actually physical product that I'm uh, going to be launching that is currently, by the time of this recording, uh, or on the date of this recording, it's actually being uh, tested with the 21 beta testers out there. And the big idea is to validate the process, to get it to a point where it's fine-tuned, and then uh, go big with a Kickstarter campaign to not only you know make money through that, but mostly to get the exposure. Uh, so, Clay, welcome to the show. Thank you. I want to talk all things crowdfunding and things like that. But before we get to that, like, can you talk about a little bit about where you came from, what you did before you got into Kickstarter and crowdfunding? Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll keep it short, but my first career out of college was at Accenture doing uh, big corporate consulting uh, at Accenture, which I believe now is the largest consulting firm in the world. And believe me, it felt like it. <laughs> there, uh, I think now they have over four hundred thousand employees, which is more like a nation uh, than a company. But in it, it was great for a number of years. In two thousand three, I was about halfway through my time there. And I was I was flying through O'Hare Airport on a layover in between two different client gigs, and uh, needed another book to read. So I dashed into the bookstore, and uh, they were calling my name. So I just grabbed the quickest book I could find, and it was it was Purple Cow by Seth Godin, mm-hmm. and that book totally changed how I thought about business. I didn't have a Jerry Maguire moment and like quit Accenture the next day. I just said, oh, this is this is great. I felt like this was the the secret scrolls of innovation that we, you know, hadn't found as a firm. And so I spent a number of years trying to bring that kind of thinking inside of this huge monolithic uh, organization. And that's not really how they're set up or how they're set up to succeed. So in two thousand end of two thousand eight, I was living in San Diego. Um, I was I was nine or ten years into the career at Accenture and uh, trying to do more with marketing and creativity and entrepreneurship and things like that. And Seth blogged about an opportunity to study with him in his office. So I applied for that and was fortunate enough to get into that, which meant I had to pack up my life in San Diego and move to New York and did that for six months, got to sit at a table with Seth and learn from the fire hose for six months and then ended up staying in New York um, until about April of 2015. And during that time, yeah, after th- after that program, I just quit Accenture, hung out a shingle, started helping um, initially authors, then entrepreneurs, then smaller companies, medium-sized companies, and eventually bigger companies with marketing strategy, really, just figuring out marketing. Mm-hmm. You know, in 2009, 2010, 11, it was, it was a lot based around social media. People wanted to figure that out. And now it's less about the tactics and more about just really figuring out the, the strategy. So, Marketing strategy is really what I do. The, the Kickstarter and the crowdfunding stuff started in about 2013. A friend of a recent client called and she said, help, you know, my Kickstarter uh, is, is not getting funded. It was already live. And I was in Hawaii and I was like, well, I'm kind of on vacation. I don't really want another small client. And 
and she's like, okay, that's fine. Just take a look at the video. And she sent me her campaign. It was, it was already live. And the video was just a tearjerker. It was, it was for a documentary film called gold star children. And the film, the term gold star children is about children who've lost parents at war. And the producer and the creator is named a woman named Mitty mirror. She lost her dad in Vietnam just hours after she was born. And she was making a film to connect her generation with the current generation of kids and so it was this amazing, awesome cause and everything. I was like, okay, cool, I'll help you. And that was my first Kickstarter um, campaign that I helped. And with with very uh, sort of minimal strategic marketing, we were able to quickly turn around our campaign and get it funded so she could finish her film. And then the film went on to win a bunch of awards and things like that. So that was that was my first introduction. But then as it happens, it, you know, as you know well, then I was just – talking to a friend over, literally over a basketball game like you mentioned and he said oh my friend slim is launching a kickstarter next week maybe you could help him and then as things happen it just kind of snowballed and one turned into two and five and ten and it really just snowballed from there and how many uh entrepreneurs have you helped uh thus far a year ago it was at a nice round number of 150 campaigns and 50 million dollars but and i kind of stopped there because it was a nice round number and i think now if i look back at the spreadsheet it's over 200 campaigns and about 70 million dollars so it's wow it's been a lot of fun to to help these creators and that you know that level of help sometimes it's a one-hour phone call and sometimes i'm more involved in the in the project but mm-hmm. um have, have touched that many campaigns in, in some level that's really cool now for those who are listening they might be thinking oh well this kickstarter thing that sounds great like why would i even want to invest in, in, in putting time and effort into that where I could promote it elsewhere. Like why from your mouth would you say going down the crowdfunding campaign is is really the way to go? Yeah, it's a great question. There's actually a, a handful, a number of reasons why someone might want to do crowdfunding, sort of as you alluded to earlier. Um, you know, you're not doing yours because you've got no other way to fund this project. You're doing it for validation, for exposure, mm-hmm. and things like that. So there's a whole list of reasons why one might want to do it. Validation is a great one. Um, although on the validation piece, I just want to make a quick point. It, it, much like your excellent book, you know, Will It Fly?, validation on Kickstarter and crowdfunding is not just about slapping it up there and crossing your fingers and one, you know, there is no validation. If you just post your campaign, you have to do all the steps that you talk about in your book. You have to do the pre-marketing. You have to find your tribe. You have to find the people that care. Then if you do that and bring them there, then the validation counts. Um, Mm -hmm. And just, just posting a project, it's not like there's this magic jury of a million Kickstarter people waiting to look at your project and deem whether it's worthy or not you need to bring the appropriate <clears throat> tribe you know i always say 99.9 percent of people do not care about your project whatever it is that's not bad news that's actually good news because it allows you to focus and find the 0.1 percent of people that do care mm-hmm. um and so so validation is one reason most people do it you know for the funds because they they need or they want the money that's associated with it, but you make a very good point, and, and your whole audience is, you know, very um, attuned to this. Doing it on crowdfunding is a choice, and there it needs to it needs to make sense because certain people know how to, you know, let's say post something online or create a Shopify store or, or do something else or launch something else. So the benefit of doing it via Kickstarter has to be worth it. Now, I, I always say the the little phrase of is something a good idea for crowdfunding a creative project with a beginning and an end in which something new gets made and shared with a tribe of people that you can identify and build permission with before you launch so that was a mouthful so i'll say it one more time (laughs) 
a creative project with a beginning and an end in which something new gets made and shared with a tribe of people that you can identify and build permission with before you launch. So if you look at Jeff Sheldon's recent uh, campaign for Gather, a really cool sort of Apple-esque desk organizer, it fits all of those things perfectly, right? It was, a, it was a creative project. He was making this new kind of thing. It had a beginning and an end. He actually ran his campaign for 60 days, and we can talk about campaign duration and things like that. Um, you know, it, it ticked off all those boxes. And if you look at just, we'll just take an extreme example, like accounting services. I've literally, over the years, had people reach out to me and like, I want to promote my, you know, accounting business on Kickstarter. I'm like, why? What are you doing? There's no creative project. There's no beginning and an end. So that's the little that's the little checklist. Okay, so creative, beginning, beginning and an end. And you'd mentioned tribe a few times. Do you mm-hmm. have to have a tribe before you go up on on Kickstarter or or crowdfund? Or, you know, I think a lot of people might be like, oh, well, I don't even have, you know, I don't even know where to start in terms of reaching out. Like, it's just simply putting it up there going to help. Here's what I say about that. You, if you want to raise any substantial amount of money, you know, if you're trying to raise $200, maybe you don't need a tribe and enough people are going to find you on Kickstarter. But in general, the Kickstarter audience is not your audience. So yes, the, the, the short answer is yes, you need a tribe. The caveat to that is depends how much you're trying to raise, depends how else you might promote it. You know, we, we all know people who maybe don't have a big tribe themselves, but they have a lot of relationships and people who might promote it for them. Or if they can, you know, um, there, there's this concept I call flash press and cash press, and we can get into that. But basically, the thing I'll say about how much traffic and backers the platform themselves brings is the platforms are not free money in the sense of you're not going to slap up a Kickstarter campaign with no tribe and no promotion and raise any substantial amount of money because the right people are not going to see it. The people on the other end of Kickstarter, like I said, 99.9% of them don't care about your thing, but it's actually very easy to go find, uh, you know, find your tribe, find the sub tribes of the people who care. One of the things I teach is define all the sub tribes. So we'll pick, um, one of the campaigns I helped years ago was this really cool cooking iPad app called Pana. This this guy named David Elner was a music industry executive. He retired, and he got Thomas Keller's cookbook, and he made buttermilk fried chicken, Thomas Keller's famous recipe. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing, and he was blown away that he actually cooked something that tasted so good. But what he wanted didn't exist. It was he had his cookbook, he had the iPad, he had his laptop with YouTube, and he had you know flour and chicken all over the counter, and it was a mess. He said, "I want one app." where Thomas Keller himself makes his famous recipe of his fried chicken. I want him cooking it on the video. I want the recipe right next to it. I want to be able to order the ingredients, da, da, da. So he created what, what he wanted to exist. And the basically, like you know, he didn't have a, a tribe of people. He was completely new to that game. He was not in the cooking game. He was not in the iPad app development game. And so we worked with him. And one of the things I helped him with was, I said, it's easy to find these food bloggers to build your tribe. You know, you don't you don't have a tribe. And as fast as he wanted to launch, um, you know, he wasn't going to take the time to build an email list. I said, but if you think about these food bloggers, you can't just email them, tug on their sleeve and say, hey, will you please write about my thing? Because I want you to. That's obviously the wrong way to do things as you teach. I say, define, develop the win-win. What's the win-win? So I said, all you have to do is tweak it a little bit. So Pana is, uh, it's like a, $15 a month subscription or something like that. Um, I said, go to these food bloggers, tell them what you're working on. Say, how about this? 
you get a lifetime subscription to Pana. So if you're a food blogger, say a medium-sized food blogger, um, you get this lifetime subscription to this beautiful magazine with all these chefs. Um, and so that so that's great. And I said, if you give uh, if you get give one away to your audience, um, you can run a contest on your blog. You can do whatever. And then here's all the creative assets and the photos and the videos and the gifs. So I was like, now instead of just asking them for promotion, you've solved the problem that every blogger has, which is they need new content and they need to add value to their audience. So that they, he basically hands them the new content on a silver platter and then the value to their audiences, they get to run a really cool campaign. And then the, the blogger themselves gets a lifetime subscription to this app and want to give away to their people. So with some small tweaks that really wouldn't have cost him anything, um, you know, then he's able to get a bunch of food bloggers on board. So the sub tribes in that case are, you know, food bloggers, super hardcore foodies, but then also like iPad app early adopters. As you know, there's people who buy every cool new hip iPad app. You know, they look at the newly released top store, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Also like fans of specific chefs. Like I would have, you know, Mario Batali as a sub tribe for that. Uh, Thomas Keller is a sub tribe for that. And like go on those forums and Twitter accounts and things like that and follow people. So there's, there's defining the sub tribes is kind of step one. If you don't already have a big tribe like you do, they need to define their subtribes, and that's the who are the zero point one percent of people who care, and what are, where are the pockets where they live online. Nice, super actionable. Thank you. So, step one: define those tribes and subtribes. What would then be step two after that point? Well, so you have to the the three steps that I say kind of at a high level. You have to decide to lead, which is decide that this is an important project, and you're going to do it, and you're going to step forward and be the leader, which kind of is just more of a mental thing. Sure. But it means when you uh, when you hit a roadblock that you're going to go through it. Then you find your tribe and find your subtribes. Figure out where they live online. Um, I'll give one more quick, really good example of this. I'm not a big cat person. I'm kind of more of a dog person. Um, but one of the campaigns I helped was called Kitty O K I T T Y O, and it's just the best example of. Uh, finding your tribe online. So Lee Miller built this, uh, well, when he, he came to me and he was going to launch Kitty on Kickstarter. And uh, I said, yeah, it's, it's a really neat device. It's a, it's a tower with a laser and a speaker and you can play with your cat when you're not home via an app. It's really cool. But I said, you have to do all the pre-marketing. I said, how many emails do you have? And he said, I have two. And I was like, what do you mean you have two emails? I was like, did he just put up his landing page today or what? <laughs> and, uh, he said, I use one for work and one for personal. I was like, no, not how many emails do you <laughs> use? I said, how many? And he literally didn't know. He literally said, what's a landing page, et cetera, et cetera. So I worked with him and we built a really great landing page. He, he had great kind of branding assets and things like that. And mm-hmm. I, I fixed all the copy and um, we created this page that converted at 40% when it was promoted in the right places. So then over six months, he gathered 13,000 emails um, and then when he launched, he was funded in 36 minutes, doubly funded, 200% funded on the first day and raised $270,000. And he was literally, like some of your listeners, literally starting from scratch to the point where he had two emails, one for work, one for personal. So um, <laughs> but the point was, like one of the sites where we, where we promoted this landing page was a site called House Panther. It's H-A-U-S Panther. And the tagline for House Panther is the premier online magazine for design conscious cat people. And it's obscure, but it's one of the best examples I have of saying you build your landing page and then you have to go find your version of house Panther. Where is the niche of the internet where the super crazies of the people that are interested in your thing hang out. And because I'm a dog person, I've never heard of house Panther and they don't have millions of views every month, but they have, let's say 50,000 views. So then, then you go back to this win, win, 
on House Panther, they do a product giveaway every uh, every month to keep their – that's one of the things they do. One of the post types they have is to keep their people engaged. They say, enter your email to win this product. So he was able to sort of slide into their editorial calendar in the way that they wanted and said, hey, will you do a, a giveaway for Kitio? And he got 2,000 emails in a weekend. So he was starting from scratch, and over, over six months, he was able to build this great you know tribe to, to launch his product. But the point is most people don't do the work of finding what's your house panther, what's your site with 20 or 30 or 50,000 uniques, where every single person who goes to house panther is interested in Kitio, as opposed to um, – so that's what I call cash press, like the – the more niche bloggers, not like super tiny, not you know five visitors a month, but like the small to medium sized blogs where it's super targeted. Mm-hmm. Because Lee Miller was also on the View with Whoopi Goldberg, and we get taught that oh, big media, you know, New York Times, right. the View, et cetera, et cetera. That's what I call flash press. It's flashy, and certainly if Whoopi Goldberg calls your product, you know, the best, her favorite product of the year, it's not going to move a bunch of traffic in units because people don't go to Whoopi Goldberg for cat devices they go to house panther but it's good as you know social proof where you cut out that testimonial put it on your landing page put it on your kickstarter page and then the people that you bring from the other channels it'll be the social proof where people say if it's good enough for them it's good enough for me it's like when you and i see um when you and i see movie trailers let's say pre-roll on youtube and it says best action movie of the year rolling stone when's the last time you or i read rolling stone magazine but they still use it as if it's good enough for Rolling Stone, it's good enough for us to see. It's like a trusted source, right? right Social right. proof. So that's cool. And I'm looking at the Kitio uh, Kickstarter page. Twenty four hundred backers pledging over two hundred seventy one thousand dollars to help bring this project to life. That's that's pretty incredible. And then the other one you mentioned earlier, Panna, uh, the pledge goal was twenty five thousand, and it reached thirty four thousand. So that's yeah, so, awesome. so so David, uh, I handed him this great food blogger strategy, and he's like, "Yeah, that's a good idea, but I don't have time to execute it." I'm like, "All right, it's." I was like, "That's going to be the difference between raising thirty five thousand and raising three hundred thousand." But he he, you know, the strategy was there, but he he needed a launch like the next day or something. Oh, okay. like that, so he didn't execute it. Well, he said, yeah. "I mean, he still reached his pledge goal." Speaking of, like, how do we know what yeah. our pledge goals should be? I've seen many different projects have many different goals. I mean, a part of me feels like you should just make it pretty low so that, you know, you can get access to it, you know, because you, at least on Kickstarter, right, you don't get access to that cash until you meet that pledge goal. But wouldn't that make you just want to make it like a dollar? So you're you're thinking about it completely right. You want you want to set your funding goal low, but there's a couple different reasons why you want to do that. Um, you want to set it low, but it depends on your actual costs for the project because the worst thing you can do is raise money, get your project funded and have that not be enough. So let's just take a physical example. Let's say you're building a new kind of drone, right? The SPI drone or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, If you need a hundred thousand dollars to place the order for the factory in China to deliver the drone, you don't want to set your funding goal at $20,000 because then you'll end up in a spot where you raise 50 and the backers think your project's funded, but you don't have enough to actually make it happen. So, you have to figure out your hard costs, what you actually need to make it happen. The big psychology play here is with donation-based crowdfunding, we're talking about rewards-based crowdfunding. With donation-based crowdfunding like GoFundMe projects or a well in Africa or you know somebody, somebody uh, has cancer or medical bills or things like that, with those kinds of projects, 
people tend to slow down their donations once they hit the goal. So if you think about any kind of fundraiser or Pencils of Promise, um, you know, gala or something like that, if they say the goal for the evening is a million dollars and they get a bunch of people and then you hit the million dollars, the the donations tend to slow down because they say, great, we hit our goal, we did our thing. When it's a physical reward when it's a rewards-based project and you're getting a drone or a hoodie or an app, you actually want to get it funded sooner and then people will blow past the goal. If you look at any of the top funded Kickstarter projects, um, you know, it's not that people say they're not donating to Eric Mijakovsky because they think he's a nice guy. They want their Pebble Watch or they want their coolest cooler or they want their Bebo hoodie or whatever it is. So it mm. with rewards-based, it turns into a store. With donation-based, if it's a cause-based thing and there's not really much of a reward, then it lets everyone get together so that we can hit the funding goal. Other In, in rewards-based, it's let's blow past the funding goal. The other reason you want to set your funding goal as low as possible, again, don't get yourself into manufacturing cost issues, um, is because you can, you can manufacture a bit of a press story. Um, the press needs more and more reasons to write about your crowdfunding campaign. In 2010, 2011, 2012, like crowdfunding was new enough that just an interesting product on crowdfunding was enough for the press to write about it. Uh-huh. Now, you know, of course, they've been deluged with you know uh, requests for promotion. So you need to figure out what's the hook and who basically who are the press outlets that you even want to write about your thing. Um, but then what's the hook? And one of those additional hooks, one additional kind of drop in that bucket can be funded in, you know, just like Kitty, funded in 36 minutes. Um, I helped a a campaign just a few days ago, (laughs) kind of a a unique niche little campaign that's still alive called the cartoon tropolis. Uh And it was like, put, get a digital cartoon version. So you get a digital cartoon version of Pat Flynn, and then you could put yourself in this cartoon tropolis city, which kind of looked like the posters of the Simpsons with all the characters kind of thing. Yeah, it was a neat little thing, but we architected it with a really low, funding goal so that he was funded in the first day and then he can use that to flip and go talk to local press and say hey this is this interesting thing but you're not going out saying begging saying please write about me because i need to hit my funding goal you're saying oh don't worry about it we were we were funded quickly so by setting your funding goal low and hitting it quickly you can manufacture a press story that's awesome that's what there's so much involved with this like um i could see why hiring somebody like you to help manage campaign would be really helpful but higher level like for people who can't do that like what are some of the biggest mistakes that people are making with their crowdfunding campaigns right now yeah absolutely there's the biggest mistake i see is just that overarching one we touched on earlier which is thinking that just by by crafting a campaign publishing on kickstarter that magically kickstarter is going to bring you the traffic and backers Mm -hmm. i always say you know like i said it's not free money but it is free to use and what i mean by that is the the campaign, the the platforms charge 5% and they bring you more than 5% of the traffic and backers. Now, they're not going to bring you 85 or 90%. They're probably not even going to bring you 40%. I always say count on, you know, 10 to 15%. That's usually a, a pretty solid and conservative estimate. And you know what? If it ends up being 30 or 40%, that's great. So, the biggest mistake is don't count on the platforms for the traffic and backers build the tribe ahead of time. And if an emailer can do it in six months, starting with zero emails, you can too. Um, The second biggest mistake I see is a lack of clarity about what the thing is and why people will benefit. The, The best Kickstarter campaigns have what I call instant clarity as in you, the everything from the title to the video, which we can talk about the video, but the video should be 
two minutes or less, right around two minutes, um, ideally even shorter. And then really clear rewards and pricing. People get clever. And as you know, most bad marketing and most things that are named poorly, the person got a little bit too clever. And so as an example, I've seen a bunch of people submit, you know, rewards based proposals with, oh, the Mad Hatter level and the Allison (laughs) Underground level or whatever. And you're making your, your reader read the additional copy as opposed to just literally saying the three pack, you know, three, three of everything or, you know, whatever the reward level is. So I always implore clients to be as specific and clear as possible throughout the whole thing. And we'll do a whole run through the campaign and say, is the title extremely clear? Okay. Now let's pretend it got shared on Twitter and Facebook. Did you come up with the, is the title so clever that if it was shared by itself without the, without the link, pretend they all they saw was the title on Twitter or Facebook, would it make sense? And it part of it's about giving up the cleverness of, of the writing of the copy. And, and another little trick on Kickstarter and Indiegogo, you know, you can kind of get away with saying the world's first, you know, the world's best, the world's best travel jacket, Babo mm-hmm. or whatever. Like, there's no lawyers that are coming it's, it's an opinion but if you say the world's best travel jacket and then that gets put, pushed to twitter if someone sees that and then a link they kind of have an idea of what they're going to see when they get there some sort of someone's opinion of the world's best travel jacket but don't say you know people get too clever so instant clarity is is another mistake i see and it's tough being the creator you know so much about your project you've talked about this on the podcast before like when you know your thing so well you're so close to it sometimes you don't back up and take the the words and the clarity to explain it to the audience in a a way when someone's seeing it for the first time yeah there's a lot of instances of that uh for sure at at least i know i've experienced that too um you've mentioned rewards a few times can we go into this because this is something that i feel can be very confusing but also have heard that it's also very dangerous because you can definitely have the rewards and all those pledge goals and gifts uh, kind of overshadow everything and actually kind of, I've heard horror stories of just the fulfillment procedures for all that just really screwing everything up. Yeah, absolutely. Perks are definitely a, a huge piece of make or break, uh, make, making or breaking a, a crowdfunding campaign. Um, people ask me questions like, you know, I read a blog post that said, <clears throat> excuse me, that said the average is $25. Do I need to have a reward at $25? Sorry, just taking a drink of water. Um, and averages like that are silly. They don't, they don't make sense. People are looking, you know, the, somebody does the math across all things and they say, oh, the most <clears throat> average contribution is $25. Mm-hmm. That means nothing. It's, it's rel- it needs to be relevant to your campaign. The biggest mistake I see in rewards is people conflate rewards-based crowdfunding with donation-based crowdfunding. And what I mean by that is go poker on Kickstarter and you'll see about 80% of the campaigns have as the first reward level some version of what I call the expensive thank you, which is something like $5 or $10. And it's like, thank you so much. We'll love you forever. We'll tweet your name from our Twitter account we just started last week. We'll put your name on our wall of fame. Nobody cares. Nobody wakes up wanting to donate to a Kickstarter, you know, your mom, your sister, your grandma. And after that, the list is really short. And if, if they're doing it, they should be donating at a higher level anyway. (laughs) So what I tell people is instead of the expensive, thank you, instead of a five or $10, essentially nothing, 
almost a slap in the face, which is a w- the worst way to get someone into your rewards and pricing because you turn them off in the, in the first chance. Totally. I say, how much value can you give them for $1? And and you, you, you've been doing this for years, like tons and tons of value. Like for $1, what can you give them? Can you give them a great PDF summary? Can you give them uh, a video series? Can you give them a <clears throat> instructional on how to use your new drone or whatever? Like what is digital and super valuable that you can give them and make it as low as possible and $1 as low as you can go. Um, and, and for the, I know a lot of your, your crowd is, um, you know, understands internet marketing and list building and things like that. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you get the emails of your backers once the campaign is over, if you're funded. And so if you want to think about it this way, if it helps you give away more value, they're paying you a dollar to give you their email address right now. The magic of this whole thing is, you actually don't want them at that $1 level. You want them at a higher level. Right. So the way you do that is now you create a level at $7 that includes the thing you included at $1 plus this other valuable digital thing. It could be could be physical, but I, I recommend keeping the rewards digital until they go to physical. And that's a little different for every campaign. But if you have a handful of digital things, it makes fulfillment easier. You can just send them an AWS link or a Dropbox link to say reward level one, reward level two. Um, So now the psychology, when they look at the $7 level, they'd be like, well, is basically the, the question their brain is asking is, is what's included at reward level two worth $6 because I'm already getting this great deal for the thing at $1, right? It's only $6 more. It's, it's almost like extra value meal pricing, right? You'd be silly to buy the burger and the fries and the drink all separately. Right. It, the extra value meal makes it worth it. So then you, maybe you go from 7 to 20. I mean, the numbers don't, you know, the numbers are just examples. It all depends on the campaign, but you want to uh, price everything, what I call below MSRP. So MSRP just, you know, manufacturers suggested retail price. It's essentially the price. What would something cost in the store? What would it cost? What's it going to cost after the campaign? If you don't have an MSRP for your product, think of what are you going to charge people post Kickstarter? And so rewards should be priced what I call below MSRP. And that's because people are giving you money long before it's not an Amazon transaction. It's not a Zappos transaction. They're not going to get 24 hour shipping. They're going to have to wait for months a certain percentage of Kickstarter projects never actually create their thing and never fail. So they're taking on a lot more risk and they're the first people putting money in. So you want to give them that, that great sort of early bird pricing. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it should be priced below MSRP and then eat, you know, there's, there's early bird to, you know, you can limit the number of um, limit the number of units at the early bird price, which I I often recommend. Um, And then even at the regular Kickstarter price, even the most expensive, that your your whatever you're selling is on Kickstarter, it should still be lower than it's going to be sold once it's off of Kickstarter or on your store, like below MSRP. So then you build these levels, and you basically want them to look at each subsequent level and say, "Gosh, you know, I'd be silly to do the one dollar. I'd be silly to do the seven dollar level because the nineteen dollar level has so much more goodies and stuff." You funnel all that down. And then you want to end at what I call the no-brainer level. And a bunch of the campaigns I've worked on, we just call it that, the no-brainer level. And the no-brainer level is the everything in the kitchen sink. And it should be it should be pretty obvious as you're going into a campaign, you know, let's say you're doing a new kind of drone or whatever. And if, if you want to workshop what your, what your uh, Kickstarter is, we could do that live and talk through your <laughs> specifics. We could definitely do that if you want. Um, but let's say it's a drone. The... The no-brainer level would obviously include the drone and maybe all of the accessories and the video of how to set it up and how to use it and how to 
attach it with your GoPro and take great photos and whatever, whatever that is. But you want to funnel people down to the no-brainer level. And then if you have higher dollar reward levels, like let's say, you know, $1,000, multiple $1,000 types of packages, you actually want the, the price differential between the no-brainer level and the next level to be much more substantial. And what this is doing is it's kind of creating a call to action. You know, you can't highlight or circle the reward level on Kickstarter and say, this is the one you want. So you do it with price, a combination of pricing and copy and funnel them down and say, this is the one you want. And then the next jump is a lot bigger. So that may be for the true fans. That may be direct access to Pat. That may be, you know, whatever those levels are at a higher price, maybe a keynote, something like that. Mm -hmm. But, but the, everything in the kitchen sink, the no brainer levels should be the highest dollar of the lower level rewards. And then maybe two or three X to, to jump because then you're, you're going to get the true fans, but you want to tell everyone else that said to say, basically, this is the call to action. This is the level you want. Right. Okay. Understood. You had mentioned like going through the specifics of my campaign. We can maybe do that at a later date. Maybe we can, after uh, we kind of finish up here in the outro, we can talk about maybe a webinar that people can get access to where you and I chat yeah, and go sure. into a little bit more specifics. And I also know that you have a course that's going to be offered too. We can mention that in there as well. So uh, make sure you stick around to the end. I mean, we're almost finished here because I'm just, we're, we're, we're definitely utilizing clay in terms of a, a top level overview of all the things we need to worry about and uh, think about when making the decision to start potentially going down this route. And so if you want to get more info, stick around to the end. I'll give you a link where Clay and I will then uh, either have um, the ability to register for the webinar or it might be a replay if you're listening to this in the future. So we'll, we'll hook you up with that later, but um, stick around. And so Clay, like uh, campaign fulfillment, I mean, let's keep talking about that really quick. T-shirts, like do things like that work or should the bonuses or the, the perks be related to um, the product in, in kind of a little bit better way? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that. You're so smart. So you should only be offering T-shirts as a reward level if two thing, if one of two things are true. One is if your campaign is about T-shirts, then obviously <laughs> your whole thing is about T-shirts. And number two is if you are a person who goes into it with a big fan base and a big tribe of your own. Like for instance, if if you launch your thing, Pat, and it's in any way related to SPI or to you or whatever, then using the Kickstarter campaign to say, here's some fun new SPI t-shirts that we've never released before, maybe in Kickstarter green, et cetera, et cetera. Like then there's cool things you could do. The mistake I see tons of people make, and I, I highly recommend against it, is don't offer t-shirts if nobody knows who you are. And the simple way to remember this is think about your favorite band. Whoever's listening to this, think about your favorite band. You didn't, if you have a t-shirt of that band, you didn't buy the t-shirt until you either had multiple albums of that band or you've seen them live multiple times. Then you buy the t-shirt because you buy the t-shirt as an identity thing to say, look, I am a fan of Jack Johnson. I am a fan of whoever. You don't buy the T-shirt and then buy the CD and say, I'm going to take these both home and listen to it to figure out if I'm a fan of this. And that's that's the psychology that people get wrong on Kickstarter is like nobody wants your T-shirt because they don't know if they like you yet. They only buy the T-shirt once they're a fan. Mm, I, I really like that distinction. OK, cool. Thank you. Um, yeah. Now, what, what, what else are we missing, Clay? What are some of the other big Kickstarter related topics that we need to talk about? I think you mentioned video, right? Yeah, the video should be short, sweet, two minutes or less. Um, there's a whole bunch of specific elements that you want to include in the video, and I'll just hit off some of them. Sure. Um, <clears throat> one is 
what's the problem you're solving? And so a, a great example of one of my favorite, um, really all his videos, but the, specifically the one, if people want to look it up and we can link it up in the show notes, Jake Bronstein, the 10 year hoodie. Um, he was selling a hoodie. He raised a million dollars selling a hooded sweatshirt that really nobody who bought it needed a sweatshirt. He told a story about American manufacturing and his, his intro to his video was absolutely brilliant. He said, can I tell you a secret? That was his opening line to the video. Now, that's a question that almost nobody in history has ever said no to because we like secrets. We want to know secrets. And so then he says, the clothes you're wearing were designed to fall apart. And he was talking about H&M and Zara and, and Uniqlo and fast fashion like that where, yeah, it's $8 for a blouse, but it's literally designed to last two weeks. Um, and so his product – and whether that's true or not, that was the positioning and that's the story he told in his video – because his product was an $80 hooded sweatshirt that's called the 10-year hoodie because it was designed to last 10 years. And then his video was brilliant, all these images of Americana and how he was going to resurrect American manufacturing and use all these great hard, high-quality hardware zippers and da-da-da-da-da. So cool. the point is he told an amazing story in a minute 57. And if you look at if you click on his name and go to the rest of his campaigns, Jake has gone back to the well. That's another thing I want to remind your listeners of is – Kickstarter is not a one and only thing, one and done sort of thing. You could, if you have a tribe and if you build a tribe and if your people like you, you can go back to the well. And so Jake has run four or five Kickstarters. He's done one for jeans. He did one literally just for blue shoelaces because part of his whole thing is his company is called Flint and Tinder and they made the hoodie and then they made the jeans. And he really is, you know, doing a lot with American manufacturing. And so just like the Livestrong movement had this yellow rubber bracelet that we all had, the American manufacturing movement that he was a big part of leading didn't really have a visual moniker. So he created these bright blue shoelaces that you could lace up your you know, brown leather boots and say, hey, if you see blue shoelaces, it's kind of the, the Harley nod, right? Like, hey, you're, you're in the know and you believe in American manufacturing. So – one yeah, of his campaigns has like eleven thousand backers at one hundred and fifty k. Yeah, totally. Blue shoelaces. That's awesome. Yeah, because because it's a story, and and I love that that you looked that up and said that because what I want your listeners to take away is nobody who bought that had a shoelace problem that day. They they were opting in to join a movement, and they were probably already either either fans of Jake or customers of Flint and Tinder, et cetera, et cetera. But watch the video. He shows like this big burly, it's like America's strongest man kind of thing, pulling a semi with blue shoelaces. But the whole while Jake is narrating and saying, join our tribe, join our movement, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody bought those shoelaces because they didn't have any shoelaces in their boots. They literally took out their existing fully functional shoelaces and inserted a story into their boots. So that's that's the key takeaway there is they didn't need shoelaces. He told a story. That's cool. And so he built up an audience through Kickstarter initially and now has yeah. been able to yeah, go he back didn't, in. Like I mean, said. yeah, Jake was good with, with media, but he it, – it's interesting – he didn't have a huge tribe or a huge email list, but he's very he was more like ready, fire, aim, like like he launched it and then he hustled and he knows how to get press and eyeballs. But more important than anything, he knows how to tell a story. The the other thing I want to talk about, and it's funny because I was talking about this before, it was the name of a conference, but the two the two reasons any Kickstarter or crowdfunding campaign um, succeeds or fails are traffic and conversion, which is also now uh, a conference that Pat and I organized a basketball game for. But um, traffic, people think they have 
uh, a traffic problem. They think they need more eyeballs. I cringe as a marketer when people say the word eyeballs because it's an organ in your face and there's humans attached to that face. And if you're, and again, 99.9% of people don't care about your thing. So if you're even thinking about it as eyeballs, you're thinking about it wrong. You need to be thinking about subtribes and pockets and house panthers and who are the small little pockets of people who care. And those people aren't eyeballs, they're, they're customers. And so people think they have a traffic problem, but really they have a conversion problem. And the elements of the campaign page, like the video, like pricing rewards below MSRP, like having a digital gift at $1 versus an expensive thank you at $10, right? Those things increase conversion. But the, the number one thing that increases conversion is bringing the people who care because there was nothing wrong with Kitio, but I'm not going to buy one because I'm not a cat person. I don't own a cat, so I don't need a Kitio. But by fishing in the pond of House Panther, where those people hang out and lots of other sites, there's another little, um, there's a little specific sort of ninja trick and it's a site that you may already know of. But once you find a site like House Panther, so a really targeted site where it's, you know, what I call cash press, like niche blogger, enough traffic, but where all your people are hanging out. Mm-hmm. A great way to find similar sites is a site called Similar Web. You just punch in that URL into Similar Web, and Similar Web's pretty amazing. It will give you not quite Google Analytics level data, but one level up, some some general data. Mm-hmm. But you could part, punch, punch Smart Passive Income into Similar Web or House Panther into Similar Web. It's public, and it will show you. Here are the traffic, here are the sites linking in, where they're getting most of their traffic, here are the sites when people leave the site, where they tend to go. And so from using similar web from House Panther, you can figure out people are going to moderncat.net and other sort of sites like that. So that's how you build out the sites of your subtribes. That's awesome. Similarweb.com. Dude, we've talked about a lot of strategies, very actionable stuff. I think a lot of people are going to be really excited about this because it's uh, very useful. And Clay, I'm really looking forward to continuing this conversation. We're going to go... And I'm going to share with you a link. Actually, we could probably share the, uh, with them the link right now. We can just, you know, change it as we go along. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, what sure. is that link, Clay, where people can go and learn more about uh, this, and you know, get access to the webinar, or register for it, or watch the replay and see uh, what else you have to offer? Where should they go? We made it super easy. It's just clayandpat.com. So C L A Y A N D P A T dot com. Cool. Yeah. There's a lot more questions I have for you. And we're going to get into the specifics of some of the stuff I'm working on there too. And plus, I want to know about, you know, like what happens after a campaign's over. Um, so this is a nice teaser for Kickstarter and crowdfunding. If you want to learn more, go to clayandpat.com. That's how we know that you want to keep diving deeper into this. Um, and, you know, I would say maybe the last question, uh, Clay, is besides clayandpat.com, like where else can people find you? Yeah, I'm Clay Abear pretty much everywhere online. And if you want to read some more blog posts on crowdfunding and stuff like that, I have stuff at crowdfundinghacks.com or clayabear.com, any of those sites. Awesome. Man, thanks so much. I appreciate you. And we'll talk more on the webinar and uh, looking forward to uh, the next basketball game. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks, Pat. I (laughs) had a blast. Thanks, Clay. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Clay Abear. And again, if you want to get all the links and the resources mentioned on this episode, all you have to do is go to smartpassiveincome.com slash session 284. Again, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 284. And Clay, once again, thank you so much. I look forward to uh, rejecting you on the basketball court very soon, uh, or it's probably going to be the other way around. But no, man, I appreciate you, and I look forward to chatting with you about my particular project in a webinar that we'll do and make it open to everybody. Um, at the time of the recording. I'm not exactly even sure when that's going to happen. If you're listening to this far in the future, you'll probably see a replay for it. But the URL for that 
is clayandpat.com. And once again, thank you. So awesome. Now look forward to next week because we are doing an interview with the founder of Ugg Monk, U-G-M-O-N-K. And after I interviewed this person, I mentioned it on Twitter and everybody's like, I love this brand. It's one of my favorite brands. And Jeff, the founder, has an amazing story about how he kickstarted a brand new thing recently and made nearly a half million dollars doing so. But more than that, he's just a down-to-earth guy and I can't wait to share him with you and his product, which you may have heard of already, ugmonk.com. But anyway, thanks again. And one more time, the link to this episode's show notes, all the links we mentioned, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 284. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. 